Well, I do want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. And uh, while you're turning there this morning, let me just tell you that this morning will involve some heavy lifting. Um, For the past several weeks, as we've been uh, making our way through the Gospel of John, we've looked at a number of the encounters that Jesus had. His encounter with Nicodemus, his encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, his encounter with the royal official whose son was ill, his encounter last week we looked at, his encounter with the the man who uh, sat, who, who laid on a mat for 38 years because of his condition, the lame man. Uh, lots of stories in that. The passage we're looking at today is all discourse. Uh, we are looking at John 5, and we're looking at verses 16 down to the end of the chapter. You will notice, if you have one of those sort of red-letter Bibles, where all the words of Jesus appear in red, that this entire section is red. This entire section is one long discourse from the lips of Jesus. And the reason I say that this will involve a bit of heavy lifting today is partly because of the length of this passage. That's my fault. Uh, I think if I were to do it again, I would break this into into two sections. Uh, But actually, the main reason I say that is because this will be more of a doctrinal sermon. Now, for some of you, your eyes are glazing over already. I mean, oh, man, like how long is this going to go and how boring is it going to be? Uh, I, I want to tell you that's not what your reaction should be. Theology is of vital importance to the health of every Christian, and theology is of vital importance to the health of every church. J.I. Packer once said this. He said, I describe theologians as the church's plumbers and sewage men, securing a flow of pure truth, and eliminating theological effluent. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that theologians have the sometimes unpopular task of protecting the church from the kind of wastewater that sometimes seeps in. And the doctrine we're looking at today is the doctrine that is of greatest importance Namely, it's the person and work of Jesus. If we get our view of everything else right, but we get our understanding of Jesus wrong, we are in deep trouble. So as we come to this passage, I want to preface it by saying something about the importance of doctrine. Zach Eswine said it this way. He said, doctrine without worship is empty Worship without doctrine leads to ignorance. Through the prophet Hosea, God said, my people die or my people perish for lack of knowledge. So preaching then, I think, needs to be both cranial and cardiological. That is to say, the best sermons are the ones that address both the head and the heart. They deal with facts and with feelings. And sometimes it's hard to get that balance right. So many churches are filled with people who are either big-headed or beheaded. Okay, I know you love my artwork, and so I thought I'd share that with you. But this is a major problem on both sides. Many churches are filled with people who are big-headed, 
The big-headed individual is the person whose head is crammed full of theological facts but doesn't have any kind of spiritual life. They are epitomized in Jesus' words later in this chapter when he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And I would say it is just as possible to miss that today as it was in the first century. The beheaded person is like the woman at the well at the beginning of her encounter with Jesus. Jesus said to her, you worship what you do not know. Or we could think of Paul's sermon in the, in the city of Athens as he walked around and he noticed all the religious artifacts and statues. And he noticed one that had the inscription to an unknown God. And there are lots of people who fall into that category. That's their brand of worship. And it's not just a problem out there. It can be a problem in the church as well. Lots of people's worship amounts to little more than emotionalism or sentimentality. And I just want to say the way we see God has a profound effect on how we approach him and how we live our lives. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves underscores the problem as he talks about a popular analogy. He says, is the triune God like H2O? The father all icy until you warm him up and he turns into the watery sun who then vaporizes and becomes the steamy spirit when you really crank up the heat. See, that's modalism. That is not what Christians believe. And that distorted view of God will lead to a distorted way of living. So with that as a preamble, let's read John chapter 5, verses 16 to 47. I'm just picking up at verse 16 because it gives us the context. And there it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing of my, on my own. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on account on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the the context, again, is that Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders were upset with him for that reason. And the accusation the leaders had against Jesus was that by both his actions and his words, he was making himself equal with God. I mean, that's what they say. He's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so what follows then in verses 19 to 47 is Jesus' response to this accusation. Now, we know that Jesus will face a trial or several trials uh, later in, in his life, shortly before his execution. But this passage is like a trial of sorts. The question under consideration was, was Jesus making the claim to be equal with God? And the short answer is yes, but I want to walk you through Jesus' argument along the lines of two sets of evidence. Exhibit A and Exhibit B, if you will. So let's start with Exhibit A. Exhibit A is the relationship between the Father and the Son. I don't know if you caught it or if you noticed it, but the, the first half of this passage is structured around five four statements. Now, that is confusing when I say it, less confusing when I write it. So let me just try to show you what I mean. I mean F-O-R, not F-O-U-R. But the second half of verse 19 says, For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Verse 20 says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. Verse 21 reads like this, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And then verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And then if you jump down to verse 26, you will see that it says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And each of those statements, those four statements, says something different 
but the structure of them is the same in all. It's, we could sum it up with, as the Father, so the Son, or something along those lines. And what we learn from those statements is something about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and we learn about the equality between the Father and the Son. And Jesus spells that out in four different areas. So we could say, firstly, that the Father and Son are equal in works. This goes back to Jesus' earlier statement. My Father is always working until now, and I am working. And that was the statement that triggered the religious leaders because they understood the implications of it. And notice, it wasn't just that Jesus, what Jesus said about the Sabbath that bothered them. It was the way he referred to God as my father. And the reaction to that in the first century was very different from the reaction to that in the 21st century. So when we read son of, we think lesser. When they read it or heard it, they immediately thought equal. That's why they said, you're making yourself equal with God. You know, one of the common lines of reasoning among cultists is, Jesus can't be God because he's the son of God. But that's not how the Jews in the first century took this. Part of that comes from the way they understood sonship. And you'll see it reflected in their language or in the language of antiquity. So James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, are referred to as the sons of thunder. Now, why were they called that? It wasn't actually a comment on their parents. It was a comment on them. Their personalities were thunderous. They caused an uproar wherever they went. In the Old Testament, when you referred to women who were beautiful. You called them daughters of beauty. You weren't making a comment about their mother. You were making a comment about them. This is the quality they possessed. Even today, we, we have this. When you call someone a son of a gun, right? You're, you're not saying anything about their parents. You're saying something about them. And the term son of God functioned in the same way. When they heard it, they heard equality. Now, Jesus gets more specific when he says, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. I think we all understand that on the most basic level. Children tend to imitate the behaviors of their parents. I mean, this is why you can sometimes pick out the child of someone that you know, even though you haven't met them before, right? You just see their mannerisms, you see the way they do things, and you know, oh, that is so-and-so's child. The things they do are strikingly similar. So why did my kids end up as Seahawks fans? Is it just because they love suffering? It's because their dad was so into it. They saw that and they followed suit. Right? Otherwise, they would have been out of the house. I mean, part of the challenge of parenting is that your children do what they see you doing. So what did Jesus do that his father did? What did Jesus do that only his father could do? What were his works that showed his equality with the father? Well, we could look at a number of Jesus' miracles to make this point. I've selected two. So in Matthew's gospel, he relates the account of Jesus setting out in a boat with his disciples. And here's what happened. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold... There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, his disciples marveled at this. Their question was, What sort of man is this? And what they were beginning to recognize was that Jesus was not just a man. Control over nature was part of God's dominion and his dominion alone. So the psalmist said it like this, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. See, man doesn't control the wind and the waves. God does. On another occasion, Jesus healed a paralytic. And that in and of itself was astounding, but but it's what he said in the process of that healing that makes it worthy of our attention in this context. In Mark chapter 2, we read this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. I mean, I can forgive you if you sin against me, but I can't forgive you if you sin against God. Only God can do that. Only God, only God has the authority to do that. And so Jesus heals this man. And in the process of that healing, he says, but so that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. But Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because Jesus is God. The Son is equal to the Father in his works. A second area we see this equality demonstrated is that the Father and Son are equal in authority. And we see this in verses 20 to 22. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him. So that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So in verse 20, Jesus tells, tells us that he will do even greater works than these. And then verse 21 goes on to describe what those works are for as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to those whom he will. It's an unbelievable statement. I don't mean unbelievable in the sense that we shouldn't believe it. I mean that everyone's jaw would have hit the floor when Jesus said this. So the rabbis taught that there were three keys that remained in God's hand and God's hand alone. The key of rain, the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection. But don't take the rabbi's word for it. Listen to what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He said, see now that I, even I am he, and there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hands. See, that's a pretty definitive statement. The only one who possesses authority over all of life is God. The only one who is able to give life as he wills is God. And Jesus says he has this authority. Now, when we get to chapter 11, we will read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's a touching story about love and family and friendship and grief. But it's ultimately a story about Jesus' authority over death, over life and death. And the actual raising of Lazarus is recorded for us like this. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, come out. Jesus has the authority to raise the dead. And that miracle was simply a foreshadowing of what will one day take place. And Jesus points to that later in this chapter in verses 28 and 29 when he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, Jesus gives life to whom he will. Verse 22 is equally as startling. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Read through the Old Testament, and you will find that judgment is God's dominion. I mean, we we are able to judge earthly matters, but only God can judge ultimate things. So Abraham refers to God as the judge of all the earth. The writer of Ecclesiastes sums up our duty in life like this. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God and God alone has the authority to judge his creatures. This was theology 101. Everyone knew this. Judgment belongs to God. Jesus comes along and says, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And this idea is not just found here. All through the New Testament, we are told that Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. So when Peter wraps up his sermon in Acts chapter 10, he says this, and he commands us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. In a similar way, when the Apostle Paul wrapped up his sermon in the city of Athens, he said, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So how does God judge the world? Well, he judges it through Jesus. Jesus has that authority. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, I'm not sharing all of that because you need more information. I'm not just trying to give you the the big-headed view of this, or because you need lots of verses that say this. I'm saying this because you and I will one day stand before Jesus. 
in judgment. He is our ultimate judge. And what will that judgment reveal about us? What will it reveal about you? Jesus has that authority. It's the third piece of evidence we see here about the relationship between the Father and Son, and that is that they are equal in honor. Verse 23 goes on to say this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, the honor that's ascribed to the Father is the same honor we ought to give to the Son. In fact, Jesus says if we don't honor the Son, we can't actually honor the Father. Now, you will know that people had different reactions and responses to Jesus in the first century, just as people have different reactions and responses to Jesus in the 21st century. There were people like the religious leaders we read about here who opposed Jesus. They didn't honor the Son at all. They rejected him. On the flip side, there were people who honored him rightly, and welcomed him, received him, submitted to him. And you can see what that contrast looked like when Jesus entered into, into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. And you know the story. Jesus comes riding into the city on a donkey. The people start spreading out their cloaks and their palm branches to, as a sort of makeshift red carpet for Jesus to come along. They're giving him a royal welcome as he rides into the city, the kind of welcome that is fitting for a king. And as he comes, they're shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. But then Matthew tells us, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So far from discouraging people's praise and honor of him, Jesus welcomes it. He encourages it. And the last line, the out of the mouths of infants part. If you go back and read that in Psalm 8, you will see it is ascribed to God. He has ordained praise for himself from the mouth of infants and babies. And Jesus applies that to himself. Why? Because the son is worthy of exactly the same honor that the father is worthy of. This was true of Jesus in his incarnation. And it is true of Jesus today. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of what the scene in heaven will look like. Listen to what we are told in Revelation chapter 4. It says, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The praise that's being sung there is being sung to God the Father. It's interesting then to take what we read in chapter four and compare it with what we read in chapter five, because in chapter five we read this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice that both the father and the son receive the same praise. Both are worthy of glory and honor. 
And when we keep reading in Revelation chapter 5, we see how this all comes together. There it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And I mean, I almost want to just stop there and say, that's what we ought to do. We just need to honor the Son, even as we honor the Father. We need to worship Him. The Father and Son are equal in honor. And those who might think, well, you know, I had this sort of general respect for a sort of general God. They're not honoring God at all. Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is not some sort of rival God or lesser God. The Father loves the Son. He delights in him. And the Father receives praise and honor when we honor his Son. So the Father and Son are equal in works. They're equal in authority. They're equal in honor. And they are equal in nature. And you need to jump down to verse 26 to see this. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. It's the last of the four statements. What does it mean to say that God has life in himself? Well, it means that he is self-existent. And the Father and Son both have this quality. This takes us into the mystery of the Trinity. So we're not going to be able to unpack all of that today, but hopefully you can see it's not that just that Jesus is like God. The Father and Son share the same essence, nature. Paul said it this way, describing Jesus in the book of Colossians. He said, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness. Our creeds describe the relationship within the Trinity as one in essence, three in person. So the Father and Son are equal. Now that's just exhibit A. I'll go through the next part much quicker, but exhibit B is the witnesses. And this is what we see in the second half of Jesus' discourse. In the section that runs from verse 30 to 39, the words witness and testimony appear 10 times. So if we are thinking along the lines of a court case, Jesus calls four different witnesses to testify on his behalf. And the first witness is John the Baptist. Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, the religious leaders had a, an odd relationship, a strained relationship with John the Baptist. On the one hand, they didn't want to speak against him because he was so highly regarded by the people as a prophet. On the other hand, they didn't want to, to acknowledge him because it would raise all sorts of questions about why they didn't listen to what he said then. And we spent a good amount of time looking at the life of John the Baptist earlier in this series John wasn't part of sort of the mainstream religious establishment, but he had this huge following, and they didn't know what to do with him. Look, if he had a podcast, it would be like the Joe Rogan podcast. 
massive amount of followers. They sort of want to cancel him, but don't really know what to do. Now, I'm not endorsing. I know there's lots of language, lots of issues with it. I understand all of that. But that's kind of the situation. John the Baptist is the first witness, and they don't know what to do with him. Jesus said this about John and the response of the religious establishment to him. He said, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. See, when John came preaching in the wilderness, the religious leader said, look, our problem with John is he's too radical. He's too strict. But then when Jesus came along, they said, well, our problem with Jesus is the company he keeps. He's too loose. And the, the, the point is, they didn't want to listen to either one of them. And Jesus' point in our passage is, look, I don't need man's testimony, but the greatest prophet of your day has testified about who I am. Now, we know from our earlier studies that John's whole ministry was devoted not to building his own following or platform, but to pointing others to Jesus. John the Baptist was the first witness Jesus called. But then he says this in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me again. So the second witness is the works that Jesus did. Now, we've already spent a good amount of time talking about Jesus' miracles. The first half of the Gospel of John is structured around seven signs that Jesus did. I don't want to revisit all of that here. I just want to say that everyone knew that when the Messiah would come, he would be attested by miracles. And Jesus' miracles were demonstrations of his authority over nature, over sickness, over life and death, and over the spiritual realm. But the religious leaders refused to accept it. In that sense, Jesus' miracles weren't defense witnesses. They were witnesses for the prosecution. They bore testimony about Jesus. And now, what will you do in the light of that evidence? So Peter says this in the book of Acts. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, uh, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Jesus was attested to or testified about by the works that he did. The third witness is the father. So if, if Jesus is on trial for claiming equality with God, the father is a pretty good witness, pretty key witness to have. Now, the father testified about Jesus on a number of occasions. You, write, you might remember this from Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the father testifies about him. But the primary way the Father actually testifies about Jesus was through the Bible. Now, the religious leaders prided themselves on their knowledge of the Bible, and they did know their Bibles well. I mean, if you were to have a sword drill with them, right, they would beat you every time. I mean, they, they knew the Scriptures well. But just knowing your Bible is not the same as knowing Jesus. Verse 39 again. You search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So if your study of the Bible does not lead you to Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And this is true of the whole Bible. It bears witness to Jesus. The goal is not just to collect a bunch of facts and knowledge. The goal is to know Jesus. And this is true of the whole Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So after Jesus was raised from the dead, he's walking along the road with those two individuals from Emmaus. And in Luke it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible bears witness to Jesus. You can go and read it and you'll find page after page testifying about the Messiah who would come and then the Messiah who has come. So those are the witnesses that Jesus calls. But I think something something we ought to notice in this discourse from Jesus is the way he turned to the tables. I entitled this message, Jesus on Trial. But notice that in the end, it's actually the religious leaders who are on trial. I mean, this is what Jesus says to them. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This has application for every one of us as well. There is a place for investigating the claims of Jesus. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? Was Jesus God? It was all the way back in 1979 that Josh McDowell wrote his apologetics book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That's actually a fitting summary of this passage as well. In light of all the claims of Jesus... In light of all the witnesses that testify on his behalf, how will you respond? Will you respond by giving him the honor that he is due? Will you honor the son just as the father is to be honored? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your grace, your goodness, and your nature. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have made that revelation in its fullest sense in the person of Jesus. And even as we know, we will never exhaust or or understand completely all the complexities related to Jesus, related to the Father and the Son. We know that we are able to know you through Jesus. And so we thank you for that tremendous gift. God, we pray that our lives would in fact be different as a result of that. And we pray that in his name. Amen.